Really today, as we, as we consider the story uh, in 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to see that the story is really about two men. But one of the things that we're going to see is this story really should have a happy ending in verse 19. It should really stop right there at verse 19. But when we get into verse 20, we're going to see the introduction of a new character, this second man of the story. And we're going to see why it doesn't end well, why he doesn't finish well. And so again, 2 Kings 5, before we get into the text this morning, I want to give a brief background in history to kind of get us up to speed on where we are contextually. Where are we finding this story in terms of biblical history? Where's it at in the Bible? Those kind of things. And so remember when, when Israel was delivered from the nation of Egypt, when Moses led them out of Egypt, Moses was not only their civic leader, but he was also their political leader, their spiritual leader. And he led the nation around the wilderness. He died in the wilderness. And then Joshua took over and Joshua became the leader, their spiritual leader. And then uh, after the conquest, we see the nation move into a period where different judges, as they were called, became the spiritual leaders of the nation. And we saw the, the cycle in the book of Judges where they would uh, respond well to the Lord. Then they would go after other gods. They would be disciplined by enemies. And then they would repent or change their mind and return to the Lord. And then a, a, a judge would lead them out of whatever kind of uh, situation, discipline, captivity they had been put in temporarily. The last of those judges was a, a guy by the name of Samuel. And you'll remember in Samuel's time that the people requested of him a human king. The nation had never had a human king. God was their king. God desired to lead that nation in a theocracy with him ruling. Um, but they requested a human king. And so through Samuel, God granted their request. He appointed Saul. Then he appointed David, and then David had Solomon, and Solomon was then tapped to replace David. And so that was the, the kingdom of Israel through the first three generations. And then when Solomon died, the kingdom was split into two separate nations because of his two sons were battling for the right to rule. And if you recall, one nation became the northern kingdom of Israel. That was comprised of 10 tribes. And then the, the other nation was comprised of two tribes, and that became known as the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's the southern kingdom of Judah that possessed uh, the city of Jerusalem. And so you've got these two kingdoms branching out. And so whereas in the past, um, well, and I'll get there in a second, but from the time of, of the split kingdom, from Solomon's sons on, they were mostly bad kings. And what I mean by bad kings wasn't that necessarily they did bad things civically for the people, but they were godless kings. They were evil kings. They led the people into worshiping different gods and idols. Most of them were bad kings. Now, occasionally there was a good and godly king in the southern kingdom of Judah, but there was never a godly king in the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's one of those things to kind of keep in mind because we're going to be looking at an event that happens in the northern kingdom with, with bad, evil, godless kings. And so it's during this time that the spiritual leaders of the nation transferred or shifted from the position of king or, or priest to the prophet. The prophets then became the spiritual leaders of the nation, and it was their voice that the nation of Israel was to listen to. Unfortunately, we know through history that the nation, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, rejected God's prophets and rejected their words. One of those prophets that almost needs no introduction is the prophet Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, that, that kingdom that never had a godly king throughout its history. And he served the Lord during 
largely during the reign of Ahab, uh, who reigned over the northern kingdom. Ahab was known for his wickedness and evil, but he was almost better known for his wife, Jezebel, who was probably 10 times more evil and 10 times more wicked than even Ahab was. And this is the reign that Elijah served into uh, ser- or served under. Now, Elijah in 2 Kings 2, just kind of building up to our passage today, he was taken to heaven. You remember that story, this, the chariots of fire. And when he was, he left behind his ministry to a younger protege by the name of Elisha. And, and those are good to distinguish because many people confuse Elijah and Elisha. But Elisha replaced Elijah as the, the primary prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel during this time. One of the things Elisha asked Elijah for was that he might receive a double portion of Elijah's spirit, indicating that he would continue Elijah's ministry and that he would possibly do even more. And we see from the scriptures that he did. So in our story today, Elisha, the, the protege, uh, is the prophet. And he's under, uh, he's a spiritual leader of the northern kingdom, but he is serving during the time of Jehoram's reign. He's the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Jehoram is a son of Ahab and Jezebel. So that kind of places us into our story this morning. And so in verse 1, we read this. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And so as we look at uh, Naaman, first we want to look at who the Syrians are. It's very important to understand that the Syrians were enemies of Israel. And as we look at some of these passages, you're going to see that they're not only enemies, but they're, they're bullies. Uh, if we're being really blunt, they're, they're really a bunch of jerks. They're just not good people. They're not nice people. And they're the kind of people that uh, not only when they beat you, they beat you, but then they take your, your nose and they rub it in the dirt. They're, they're that kind of enemy as we're going to see. In fact, 1 Kings 15, one of the things that Syria had done is they had made an alliance with, with Israel, the, the northern kingdom. And so one of the kings of Judah named Asa, we see in 1 Kings 15, 18 through 20, he paid the king of Syria to break his alliance with Israel. And guess what he did? He took the money and he broke his alliance. There was no loyalty to this northern kingdom. We see another story in 1 Kings, and this is actually worth turning to. 1 Kings chapter 20, verses one through three. You can turn there, you can listen to me, read it. But one of the things that the king of Syria does is he taunts the king of Israel. He taunts Ahab. This is the king that's in place in our story in 2 Kings, Jehoram. This is his father. But the king of Syria taunted King Ahab after besieging their their capital city of Samaria. That was the capital city of the northern kingdom. And in 1 Kings 20, he says this, And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Uh, 32 kings were with them with horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria, made war against it. Then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, the king of Israel, and said to him, thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine, your loveliest wives and children are mine. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, if somebody says that to me, somebody comes up to my front door and says, your wife is mine and your children are mine, I mean... I hate to say, but that's, that's going to turn into a physical altercation. I mean, those are fighting words. 
They, you don't say that to somebody. And this is the way Syria treated the northern kingdom of Israel. Even when they weren't fighting Israel, we're going to see, even when they weren't in battles, the, the Syrians would send little clandestine raids throughout the country and they would kidnap people and they would steal people's possessions. We're going to see that even played out in verse two, because one of the reasons that Naaman who is the commander of the army of Syria, is going to get healed is because one of the girls that they had kidnapped from Israel actually brought up a potential solution. We'll see that in verse 2. Even after our story in Second Kings 5, you would think that, uh, again, by the way, spoiler alert, Naaman's got leprosy, he's going to get healed. I mean, that's, that's the great exciting thing about this story. But even after this story, if we, we go on to the Second Kings 6, 8, the king of Syria is still going to make war against Israel, even though they helped him by healing his army commander. It's just incredible, this, the, the enemies that the Syrians were. And by the way, a hundred years later, this same group of people are the very people that are going to take the northern kingdom captive and back to their land. They're going to completely annihilate the northern kingdom of Israel, this same people, a hundred years or so from now in our story. Now, one of the things that we learn is that Naaman was probably involved in many of these conflicts. How do we know that? Well, he was the commander of the Syrian army. If there are, are armies or battles uh, or wars or raids being, being uh, executed by the army, the, the commander is probably involved in that. And so I think it's safe to assume that Naaman was involved in many of these things that we read about. He had probably killed Israelites. He had probably killed not only men, but women and children. We know that he had kidnapped Israelites. In fact, the servant girl in verse two was, was a slave from one of those raids that he had probably conducted or he had ordered to be conducted. And so in fairness to Naaman, he was doing what his job description entailed, but he was not a friend of Israel. He was, he was no friend. And this is setting the stage for what we're going to see in this story. In fact, based on the king's point of view, the king of Syria, Naaman was a great man. He was a, an honorable man, the text tells us. He was a mighty man of valor. He was very successful in his given profession. If you thought of a warrior in the nation of Syria at this time, who's the greatest warrior? That everyone would say Naaman. That's who this guy was. He was honorable. He was valiant. Uh, he probably did things in battle that even impressed hardened soldiers. This was a man's man, Naaman was. Notice too, the text tells us in verse one, which is kind of a weird statement when you consider this is a Gentile that we're talking about in the Old Testament. But notice it says that it was by him that the Lord had given victory to Syria. And you ask the question, wait a minute, what do you mean the Lord, this is Yahweh, why would he give a Gentile Syrian victory? And yet, we see oftentimes that God often used other nations to discipline Israel. This was the, the way that he's worked throughout human history. And so although neither of the Gentile captivities had happened yet, remember we have the first Gentile captivity of Israel after this point by the Assyrians in about 722 BC. And then uh, a little over 100 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah were, were taken into captivity by the Babylonian nation. And so this, although this is before any of those two captivities, uh, we see that those are on the horizon, that God would use Gentiles 
oftentimes to discipline his people for following after other gods. And so he's using Naaman and the Syrians to do that to Israel. And he's giving them victory many times to teach his nation hard lessons that they needed to learn largely that their God was greater than any of the gods that they were worshiping. You know, when you have to, when you worship a God and you have to stand him up and make sure he doesn't fall over, that's not a very powerful God. And that's exactly what they did in idol worship many times. But you know, one of the great things that we see in this text is that God had a bigger picture for Naaman's life than just to make him a valiant and trusted warrior for Syria. It was a bigger than just using him as a tool in the discipline uh, of Israel. In fact, the bigger picture purpose was God's glory. We're going to see that, that God gets glory for doing something that had never been done before, and that's to heal a man of this horrible disease of leprosy. Because in spite of all the great things that Naaman had go- going for him, he was really the man about town, the, the guy that you would admire, the guy that you would get his autograph, so to speak. And yet the text tells us at the, the end of verse one, it's, it's such a subtle little comment, but it's loaded in what it means. But he was a leper. He was a leper. So what is leprosy? Well, basically this is a picture of a, a man that was painted um, that had leprosy. And you can kind of see the results there on his face. But basically, let's put it clearly, it was a death sentence. It was a death sentence that no one had ever been healed of or cured from at this point in history. In fact, as we learn about the disease, it's really awful. It's, I've got some, some writing, write-ups on here from, from different medical uh, writings, but it, it begins, they say, with specks on the eyelids and on the palms. It gradually spreads over the whole body, bleaching the hair white wherever they appear crusting the affected parts with white scales, causing terrible sores and swellings from the skin. Listen to this, from the skin, then the disease eats inward to the bones and it just rots the entire body piecemeal, one member of the body at a time. And as this form begins to spread, they they say portions of the eyebrow may disappear. Then spongy tumor-like swellings appear on the face and the body the, the disease itself is systemic, means it, meaning it gets into your internal organs as well. It's deep-seated in the bones and joints and marrow of the body, resulting in the deterioration of the tissue between the bones. The results are deformity, loss of feeling in the appendages, and in the fingers and the toes, they eventually fall off. And many times people would, would testify that had leprosy, that they would go numb in their hands, and then they would be resting on a table and not re- realizing that they were resting on a, on a fiery stove and, and their hand would be burnt off and they wouldn't even feel it. This is the, the tragedy of leprosy. And imagine a mighty warrior going in battle who possesses leprosy, who, who goes to raise his sword to defeat an enemy. And then at that moment, three of his fingers fall off. He, he can't even feel his fingers. He, he drops his sword. He would be a liability in battle. At some point, you know, the sad thing about it is many people lived in this condition until their death for 20 to 30 years sometimes. This is where Naaman was. He, life was going okay at this point. He was the commander of the army, but his life had a short term on it. And, and, and his ability to do what he had been doing 
was going to be up at a moment's notice, and he really had a death sentence upon him with, with leprosy. So now that we've set the stage for the story, this mortal enemy uh, of Israel having this horribly debilitating disease for which there's no cure, let's go on in our story. In verse 2 through 4, we see that there's a ray of hope. Verse 2, and the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back a captive young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife, and then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, the king, saying, thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Now, as a result of one of the raids that we had mentioned earlier, that uh, this young girl uh, had been kidnapped. She was an Israeli young girl, and she had been kidnapped, taken away from her family, and she'd become a servant of Naaman's wife. Now, why she would want to help a man who had caused her captivity, we don't know. But, but she offers this helpful advice to uh, her mistress, the, the woman, Naaman's wife, who she is uh, working for and serving. Um, the reason she brings it up, it might lend credence to the type of man that he was in verse 1. Maybe, maybe he was an honorable man. Maybe he was somebody that, was, um, that you enjoyed working for. We don't know, but she does bring it up at this point. And for whatever reason she brought up, um, this was the only option that she could possibly think of that might be a help to her master, Naaman. You know, she probably, as a, as a young girl in Israel, grew up in this northern kingdom, probably grew up hearing stories about Elijah, maybe his battle with the prophets of Baal. Maybe that was a, a legend that they talked about. Maybe she had heard about even Elisha, his protege. Maybe she had heard about some of his miracles. I mean, 2 Corinthians 4, we see that even Elisha raised a young, a young man from the dead. He re, he, it wasn't resurrection, it was resuscitation, right? He, he, but he rose him from the dead in 2 Kings 4, 8. So maybe she brought this up because she said, you know what? I've heard of this guy. If anybody can do something miraculous, it's this man, this prophet in Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. And so a ray of hope just shined through her words. Maybe, just maybe, this could help him. Maybe this guy, Elisha, this prophet could help him. But you know what? What's, what's scary, what's interesting about this story is it's gonna take kind of a plot twist here because he's going to have to go to one of his enemies to get healed. So he goes to the king. He, he describes what he's hoping for. And the king then says this in verse five, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. You can see the, the king of Israel's response. Wait a minute, is this a trick? Like, are you... Are you serious? You, you're sending the commander of your army to me to heal him of leprosy, of which nobody's been healed before. What are you trying to pull here? What are you trying to do here? You know, in, in our day, it might, be, it might be equivalent to sending somebody with COVID-19. You know, right now, there's no cure uh, other than rest and, and, you know, 
fluids and things like that. But in terms of a straight up cure, but this was 10 times worse. Nobody had ever been healed from leprosy. And so we see that the king of Syria loved Naaman so much that he was willing to turn to one of their enemies, an enemy that he had mocked. We had seen earlier in 1 Kings 20 and put his money where his mouth was. In fact, we see that he antes up the equivalent of 750 pounds of silver. That's $160,000 in today's currency, 150 pounds of gold, which is about $3.7 million in today's currency. He's offering a lot of money to the king of Israel to heal his commander. And the letter simply asks the king of Israel, heal Naaman. Yeah, hey, by the way, could you heal my guy of leprosy? This is just an odd letter to get out of the blue. And probably this king, the king of Syria, probably as many Gentiles would think, if you had a prophet in your country that was this powerful, that had the possibility of healing someone from leprosy, he just naturally assumed that the king of Israel would have that guy close by, that he would probably a part uh, of what that king's kingdom was. If he had someone that powerful, you would think the king would want to listen to that guy and, and, and have him participate in the ruling of his kingdom. But you know what? Most kings would do that, but not the northern kingdom of Israel that had nothing but evil and godless kings because they didn't want to hear the word from their God. They didn't want to listen to the prophet's word, which largely was negative against how they were living their life. So this prophet wasn't even near the king in terms of relationally. And so the king of Israel thought this king of Syria was playing a trick on him. He was asking him to do something impossible so that when he couldn't do it, he had a reason to pick a fight with him. Again, remember, no one had been healed of leprosy up to this point in time. And so Elijah hears about it. Verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now, who is Elisha? Well, Again, we mentioned earlier, Elisha was Elijah's successor as a prophet of God. He was appointed by the Lord. You can read about that in 1 Kings 19, 15 through 21. But some of the things that we see after Elijah was uh, translated to heaven, we see a couple of things that Elisha does even before we get to 2 Kings chapter 5. In 2 Kings 2, we see that he miraculously cleans a city's water source. Uh, That was a miraculous thing that he did. And that was kind of the first miracle that we see that Elisha performs as a prophet of God. The next one's kind of funny. This is one of those things that you just, you just love that it's in the Bible because it's just so real. It's kind of funny. Um, In a sense, it's funny. In a sense, it's tragic. But it's just one of those odd stories because remember he summoned two bears. There were, there were 42 young people that were making fun of Elisha because he was bald. And this goes out to all the bald men that are listening this morning. Elisha would be in your corner because he didn't like it either. In fact, he calls two bears out of the woods to kill these 42 young people just because they were making fun of his baldness. And you think, what, why is that story even in the Bible? I don't know. It's just, it's kind of one of those things. It's just recording what happened. And it's kind of funny 
uh, and cool. And then we move to chapter 4 of 2 Kings, where we see Elisha miraculously produce oil for, for a widow so that she might pay the debts uh, so her sons would not be sold into slavery. And just kind of a kindness there to uh, a helpless widow. We also see that he not only miraculously predicts that a Shunammite woman will have a son, but when he dies, he then raises that son from the dead. We see that in 2 Kings 4. We see that he purified a pot of stew in 2 Kings 4. This is that story where they told him, man of God, there's death in the pot. Remember that? That's kind of another funny story. There's death in the pot. Um, You know, sometimes... Uh, that's what food tastes like. You know, it's, it, somebody that doesn't know how to cook, it does taste like death, but he, he weren't talking about that. It was actually killing people and he purified that pot. And then we see also in, in, in like way that, that Jesus did later, many years later, uh, he actually multiplied food. Uh, Elisha did to feed a hundred men so that they had uh, a buffet and all, all you can eat buffet and also some leftovers. So this is Elisha. He's not new uh, to miracles. Now, again, as I've stated before, nobody had ever healed leprosy before, but somehow we, we see Isaiah or Elisha's confidence in verse eight. He says, um, he says, basically send the leper to me. He's going to know that there's a God in Israel. So he was confident that God was going to use him as, as a tool to heal Naaman. And so one of the things that we see in verses eight, nine is Elisha uses some words here. It's very telling. It's very interesting. It's a subtle point, but I think it's worth bringing out. Notice that he says, when he says, send the man to me, he he tells the, the king of Israel, please let him come to me. And then notice the next phrase, and he shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. It doesn't say you shall know. In other words, King Jehoram, king of the northern kingdom of Israel, you shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. It doesn't say Israel shall know. It doesn't say the Syrians shall know. But notice what he says, Naaman, he, Naaman shall know. And this is just one of those things that's very incredible because the miracle that's about to be performed was for the benefit of Naaman. Naaman was the sole, was one of the sole beneficiaries of this miracle. And not only that, it would validate Elisha's ministry uh, as a prophet going further. But what that tells us about the character of God is so important. And that's this, God cares about individuals. God cares about the entire world, not, not only Jews. You know, oftentimes we come to the Old Testament and we think, oh, you know, God just cared about Jews or God didn't have anything to do with Gentiles. This is one of those stories that says, no, he cares about individuals. He, he cares about even Gentiles. In fact, the nation of Israel was designed to be God's megaphone, his microphone, if you will, to the surrounding Gentile nations. They were not supposed to go into seclusion, holding the truth in themselves like a holy huddle, never breaking to share it with. They were designed to share it with the surrounding nations. So it wasn't God's intention that Israel becomes this exclusive, we hold our truth, never share it with anybody type of nation. That was never the design. And so we see here that that God cares about individuals. You know that you go to the New Testament, you see that God cares about individuals. He cared about the religious Pharisee, Nicodemus. We see that in John 3. He cared about the sinful Samaritan woman at the well. Remember, Jesus uh, was tired. He sent his, his men away to go get food and he sat at the well, had a divine appointment with a woman who was a sinful woman. She'd been married five times. She was living with a man that she wasn't married. And God still cared 
about her. We see God cared about the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. He took Philip from a very successful ministry in Samaria and he moved him. He took him away from that ministry of probably hundreds or thousands for one man on his way home from Jerusalem, a a eunuch from Ethiopia. And then we see God cared about Cornelius in Acts 10, the first Gentile convert, the, the jailer in Philippians in Acts 16. All of these things, we see that God cares about individuals. And you know what? He cared about Naaman. He, he cared about Naaman. He cared about his soul. He cared about his disease. And he allowed it to happen now that we're going to see because he's going to heal him and bring himself glory. In fact, one of the things that Jesus brings our attention to in Luke 4.27 is he, he brings his attention to this very thing. Many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And you know, when he made that comment, if you go to Luke 4, he was in his own synagogue at Nazareth. And when he made that comment, although it was true, the people in Nazareth wanted to kill him because they noticed that he said, hey, God cares about Gentiles too. God cares not only about Jews, but also Gentiles. And here's proof. And he gave two proofs. This was one of them, Naaman's healing. And so Naaman shows up on Elisha's doorstep, ready to be healed. But we're also going to see because he's got this pagan background, he expected the healing to happen in a certain way. And he expected God, the God of Israel and and God's servant to do it in a certain way, that there were certain hoops. And so we're going to see his response. In fact, it starts with, Really, Elisha's response, Naaman's on his doorstep. And in verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him. See, Elisha didn't even come out himself. He sends a messenger to Naaman saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And so we see Elisha does not even come out of the house to greet Naaman. He sends a messenger out to see him. And this was unacceptable culturally. Even, even in Jewish culture, this was typical of how a superior person would treat an inferior person. And this is why Naaman was furious and stormed away. In fact, we know that feeling today. You know, if you tried to get an appointment with the president of certain companies, you would never get an appointment with the president. He would never personally come greet you. He might send one of his, his subordinates to meet with you, but you would never get that meeting. Same kind of concept here. And so Elisha doesn't even come out. He just sends a messenger to tell Naaman what to go do, what the prescription was. And you know, one of the things we learn about this is that Naaman was, was not in a state where he could be healed. He was going to demand and had expectations of God on how God was going to do it, and so he wasn't ready. In fact, he was proud. He was self-inflated with importance. He was the commander of the Syrian army. He was held in high esteem by not only his own countrymen, his, his king, but also probably neighboring countries that he had um, destroyed and, and taken captive. If somebody deserved to be respected, it was Naaman. He was the man. He literally could have said to Elijah, do you know who I am? And Elijah should have known who he was. He was that kind of God, that kind of guy. And yet he had to come to God in God's way. 
He couldn't dictate to God how this was going to happen. He needed to present himself to the Lord and respond to whatever the Lord put in place for his healing. And so he was insulted. He was angry. In fact, the prescription for his healing was probably easy, too easy in his thinking. Go wash in the Jordan seven times? What? How many rivers had he been in? How many lakes had he been in in his life? None of the waters had ever washed away his leprosy. If that was the cure, why didn't everybody go bathe in the Jordan? So you see, this is so easy. And so he was furious that Elisha had not done it the way he expected it to be done. In fact, he had traveled all that way. He had loaded all of that money. He had this anticipation of being healed. He probably, like we do oftentimes, he probably daydreamed how that would happen and how that would look. And this was not what he had envisioned. He envisioned something much more grand. In fact, instead of being a big spectacle, this would be a quiet, almost nonchalant healing experience. In fact, nobody would even be there except the party that he had come with. This wasn't the way it was supposed to happen in Naaman's thinking. And you know, any athlete will tell you, in fact, the NBA and the Major League Baseball are talking right now about trying to continue their seasons without the fans. And that is going to create a different dynamic than what they're used to. When you play in front of 20,000 people and then you play in front of zero, there's just a little less juice in the air. And, you know, on a personal level, I remember um, I had an opportunity to get called up to play in a major league exhibition game against our AAA team when I played for the Rockies. And um, that, that crowd, that stadium was packed to capacity. It held close to 10,000 people. And I remember I was so nervous as a young man. I was 19 years old. I was one, one year away removed from high school baseball. And here I am sitting on the bench uh, with major leaguers that I had grown up admiring and knew from years, years ago, a couple of Hall of Famers that were coaches. I mean, it was just incredible. And so I get put in at shortstop. And in the very first or second inning that I get put in, I get a ball hit to my right and I completely lay out and dive. And once that ball hit my glove, the entire crowd went, ooh. Now that doesn't sound like much, but that, that even in the moment of playing baseball, I heard that noise. I felt that noise run through my entire body, and that was only 8,500 people. And, and that, that juice that's in the air, and, and oftentimes you wonder if Naaman was looking forward to this big, exciting spectacle. You know, he, he thought Elijah was going to come out and, and start calling on the name of his Lord and waving his hands and, and maybe fireworks going off, so to speak, and that he would be kind of maybe carried out by his men on their shoulders and All of this was going by the wayside because all he had to do was go to the Jordan and dip in it seven times. And he probably wanted to make a big fuss about himself. And so he's angry. You know, the Jordan River was was muddy. It was inferior to the rivers in the quality that Naaman had mentioned from where he was from. But here's the point. He was missing the point. It wasn't the Jordan River that was going to heal him. It wasn't the quality of the water in the Jordan River. You know, a lot of people like to go to Israel and get baptized in the Jordan. But, you know, I hate to tell you, there's no difference between that water and, and water in Noonan, Georgia. Um, I mean, it's kind of exciting. Maybe it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's something that is kind of means something to you. But in terms of the quality of the water, it's the exact same. So it's not the quality of the water that healed Naaman. And this is what he was missing. It was the God 
behind the instruction to go to the water who healed him. See, it was a, it was a who. It wasn't a what. It wasn't a how. It wasn't a method. In fact, if that was the method, then every leper that existed after Naaman should have gone to the Jordan and washed seven times. It wasn't the Jordan. It wasn't the number seven. It wasn't the water. That's not what it was. It was the God who determined in that moment, I'm going to heal a Gentile. I'm going to care for and heal a Gentile by the name of Naaman. In fact, you'll see as you go throughout all the scriptures, the healings, all the methods often change and are unique with each situation. In fact, there are times where Jesus heals somebody by speaking it from a distance. There's times where he lays hands on them. There's times that he heals a blind man by, by spitting and rubbing mud on his eyes. And then there's other uh, methods that he used. So the focus of the attention should never be on the method, but always on the God who's behind the healing. In this case, that's what Naaman was missing. In fact, he thought it was too easy. Look at his Look at what his servants say to him, verse 13. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. You know, because the prescription was so simple, Naaman stumbled on it. He just completely stumbled on. In fact, Elisha, if he had said, hey, do a thousand push-ups, run around Israel 10 times, promise to serve the Lord for the rest of your life, leave Syria, become the leader of the nation of Israel's army, give up your firstborn child, you know what? Naaman would have done it. Because in his mind, that equated with the healing, that there was something grand and great that he might need to do. And he was probably gonna be willing to do that. But because you give him something easy, it didn't make sense to him. He stumbled at it. And he actually had to have his servants encourage him. Look, look, Naaman, I know it sounds dumb. I know it sounds easy, but just go try it. What's the harm in trying it? And the second he goes down there, he dips himself in the Jordan River. He's cleansed. In fact, he's probably got better skin complexion than he had ever had in his entire life. It's, it says, the text tells us he had... The, the flesh of a little child, you know, smooth as a baby's cheek, right? That's what he's talking about here. I mean, it was incredible, his skin complexion, just by dipping himself in the Jordan. And you know what? Many people in our day, if I can make an application, many people in our day still stumble at the ease by which we can be saved from hell in an eternity spent apart from God. Many people still stumble. They say it can't be faith alone you got to do something. The faith that saves is never alone. There's all these phrases out there, but the Bible unequivocally says that the work has been completed by Jesus Christ, and the only response we have to, to, to make to that work is to put our faith in what Jesus did for us. In fact, when we look at God's way, God had, had told Naaman there was one way to be healed, go to the Jordan dip seven times. God is now telling the world the only way to be saved from his eternal condemnation is to put your faith in my solution, in the solution that I provided by sending my son to die in your place for your sins so that you would never have to face that death penalty. And I will accept his sacrifice on your behalf. That's the message of the gospel. But for many people still, it seems too easy. Well, it is easy. It's always easy when somebody else does the work. And that's what happens in salvation. God has done the work 
for you so that you have nothing left to do but to put your faith in what he finished and what he accomplished. And so when Naaman finishes dipping himself, not only was his leprosy healed, but he regained the soft skin, perfect complexion of a child. Now, immediately he wants to return. Verse 15, he returns to the man of God, he and all his aides, and he came and stood before him and said, indeed, now I know that there's no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And so Naaman shows his gratitude. He wants to come back and give Elijah the gift, but Elisha would not take the gift. Remember, this was, this was all that money, $160,000 worth of silver, $3.7 million worth of gold, these 10 changes of royal apparel. And you know, Elisha recognized something that day that Naaman needed to recognize, which he was starting to recognize based on his testimony there in verse 15. Elisha was not the reason that Naaman was healed that day. God was the reason. He was only the messenger used by God. And so Elisha understood this and he did not want to receive any praise that was due to God in him alone. And now we come to verse 17. Can I kind of close out this first section? Verse 17 through 19. Naaman said, then if not, if you won't take this gift, he gives us some odd requests. Please let your servant be given two mule loads of dirt, of earth for your servant will no longer uh, offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there and he leans on my hand and I bow down in the temple of Rimon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this things. Then he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. And so we get these odd requests, at least odd to us, but understand where Naaman's heart is coming here. His first request, give me two mule loads of dirt. Why would he request that? Well, notice in his thinking, many polytheists of that day believed they had to worship uh, their God either in, in, in that God's land. So in the case of the God of Israel, he would need to worship that God in Israel's land. Or if he couldn't, if that was impossible, he would take dirt from that land, bring it home with him, and then that's where he would offer his sacrifices. You know, he doesn't want to go on worshiping other gods at all. In fact, look at how he says it in verse 17. He says, um, either uh, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but only to the Lord. And so this is why he makes this odd request. You can see his heart behind it. Second request, he says, may the Lord pardon him as he goes about his work duties uh, in the appearance of worshiping in another God's temple with his master. See, he was in a real bind because as a Gentile, he was in a very polytheistic land. And in order to serve his master, he needed to go into those God, those false gods and their temples with his master. And, and he asked for forgiveness or pardon for having to do that. And it's interesting because later in, in history, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow down to a foreign god. In a similarly tough situation, um, and Naaman does here. So why the difference? Well, I think maybe it's because Naaman was not an Israelite with the advantage of the revealed word of God. That may be one reason that he was shown a little bit of grace for that reason. And so... Instead of correcting this uneducated Gentile, 
he, he grants both requests. He says, hey, go your way in peace. Now, this is where the story should end. It should end right here in verse 19. We can say, yay, God healed Naaman. Good for Naaman. I'm pumped for him. What a great story. And yet we get to verse 20. And we're introduced to this new character, Gehazi. And in verse 20, we read, but, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, look, my servant has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. And so in verse 20, we see that the verse starts with a but. That's, that shows us there's more to this story. Who was Gehazi? Well, he was a servant of Elisha. He was a close companion. He probably could have been Elisha's successor the way that Elisha was Elijah's successor. And so he was blown away by Elisha's miracle. And as a businessman, he said, someone should profit from this. And so notice that he says, the text tells us, he goes after him to run after him and to take something from him. Greed and stealing go hand in hand oftentimes. And notice he's not gonna waste any time. He's gonna try to catch him before he gets home. Now, because the Syrians were enemies of Israel, Gehazi may have justified his own actions. In fact, we don't know the whole history, but maybe someone close to Gehazi had been kidnapped in one of the raids that, is, that the Syrian commander Naaman had led. Maybe even someone close to him had been killed by the Syrians. We don't really know. We know that greed, it could have been just old-fashioned greed, but it could have been a number of these things if we had the entire backstory. And so he's justifying this. And as he runs up with Naaman, uh, we won't read the verses, but he see, Naaman sees him running to him and he automatically assumes, uh-oh, something's wrong with the prophet. Something happened. And so Gehazi's urgency probably concerned Naaman. And so he makes up this story. He lies about what Elisha said. He says, oh, we've got these prophets that have come in town. We are gonna need some of that money now. And this is what he tells Naaman. He, he makes this story up. But now notice how yielding to greed has now given birth to many other sins. Theft now, lying, and we're going to see now he's going to deceive Elisha when he goes back uh, to see. And it just kind of brings up a great point that any time you are walking according to the flesh, you are capable of any sin in the catalog of sins. And we kind of see that develop. In fact, King David started with lust and he ends with murder in the case of Bathsheba and her husband. It, it just progresses. You start with something that seems kind of innocent and the point is this, is when you're presenting yourself to the sin nature, you will be dominated by the sin nature. It may present itself in a quote-unquote acceptable sin that's not hurting anybody is how we justify it. But then in a, in, a, in a moment, it can turn to something much worse. And so we see how greed is now giving birth to these other sins. And then we come to the tragic ending, verse 25. Um, Let's read it. Now he went in and stood before his master. This is Gehazi. And Elisha said to him, where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, your servant did not go anywhere. And you know, Gehazi lied to Elisha. Much like a, a child who lies to a parent when they know what they already did. It's like the kid that was told not to eat chocolate chip cookies. And then they, they eat it and they leave all the chocolate on their cheek and on their lips. And then mom and dad, <laughs> they see the evidence. They're just trying to give him or her a chance to come clean. And they're like, oh, no, I didn't eat any chocolate chip cookies. They're like, what's that chocolate on your mouth? The same way with Gehazi. I mean, he, he knows. I mean, Elisha knows what, what had happened. And, you know, one of the things about Gehazi is he was no different from the false prophets of his day. They, 
they selfishly lined their pockets. They brought contempt on the office of prophet. And unfortunately, Gehazi was no different than any of the others. And notice Elisha's inner turmoil here in verse 6. He says, then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? And you see this inner turmoil for Elisha. Did not my heart, he says, go with you? Man, I, I loved you. I, he loved Gehazi. He hated to see him yield to this greed. You know, the idea is that Gehazi, why would you do this? God provides for us. We don't need that stuff. God will take care of us, Gehazi. Why did you do it? When I saw that, I was just broken hearted to see you do that. And as a result of his actions in verse 27, we read this, therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you, Gehazi, and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous as white as snow. And so as a result of his actions, Gehazi was stricken with leprosy and not only him, but his descendants forever. It's interesting because even his descendants were impacted by this horrible decision. And so we should have had a great, exciting, uh, the story ends positively and they lived happily ever after kind of ending in verse 19. And yet we're stuck with this dealing with what happened to Gehazi. It's incredible. This should have been a story of grace upon an enemy of Israel, and yet we're, we're forced to deal with both of these men. And so let's just end there with a couple of applications. First, in salvation, you know, unbelievers must come to God in his way. There's only one way to come to God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And many unbelievers uh, are upset with that. That seems too easy. They want to do something. Surely there's something more I have to do. Surely I got to do this. Surely I have to promise this. Surely I have to commit to this. That's not what the Bible teaches. If Jesus Christ paid it all and died for your sins, there's nothing left to pay. You simply must trust in his finished work for you. In sanctification, believers also must come to God in his way, the only way. And that is also through faith in Jesus Christ for the deliverance of, from the power of sin. We were delivered from the penalty of sin when we put our faith in the finished work of Christ. Christ died for us and he rose again. But we're also saved from the power of sin by faith. Colossians 2.6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did we receive Christ Jesus the Lord? By faith in his finished work. How do we walk in him? By faith in a finished work. And when it comes to deliverance from the power of sin, we're talking about the finished work of your and my co-crucifixion with Christ and co-resurrection with him. We are to be reckoning ourselves dead to sin, taking advantage by faith of the work God performed to deliver you or to sever you from sin's influence in your life. This, this sin nature that wants to dominate you and make you its slave. And so instead of trying to come up with all of these ways that we're going to become spiritual, we are designed to trust in God's way and his alone. And then finally, an application. It's not how you start, but how you finish. Think about the story. Think about how it started for Gehazi and Naaman. Who would, whose team would you have wanted to be on? And yet notice how it ends. And so it's an encouragement to you today to finish strong. It's an encouragement to you today that no matter what failure you've experienced in the past, today's a new day. Today's a day to start by faith, moment by moment, finishing strong in your Christian life, taking it one day at a time. Let's close with a word of prayer. 
Lord, I do thank you for this story. It's, uh, it's an encouragement and a warning at the same time. And yet it, 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 it's a story that values where we are today. The fact that we have a body, the fact that we have breath in our lungs, the fact that we can start today in terms of finishing strong, walking by faith, trusting in your solution, not only for sin's penalty, but also for sin's power in our life, Lord. And we thank you for the story of Naaman. We see your character. We see your grace. We see your care for the individual. And so may we just be encouraged by who you are, what you've done, what you continue to do, and what you have planned for us in the future. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.